Welcome to Get Real Health. I'm your host, Dr. Chana Davis. This show cuts through the noise to give you science-based insights from real experts so that you can make smart, healthy choices. Today's conversation is all about navigating the modern world through the lens of toxicology. I'm joined by Dr. Allison Bernstein, who's a professor of neuroscience and toxicology at Michigan State University. She's also a passionate science communicator. She and I have a common goal to help people minimize unnecessary stress while taking action to behave responsibly when there is a real stress. So we'll discuss some basic toxicology concepts today, including risk, hazard, and exposure, as well as the differences between natural and synthetic and when that division actually matters. Finally, we'll just make this real by bringing it into the grocery store, the kitchen, and the rest of your life. So Dr. Bernstein will share some of her personal habits that are informed by her research in the lab and outside of the lab. To learn more about Dr. Bernstein, check out her website um, at her lab or scimoms.com. Dr. Allison Bernstein, thank you so much for coming in for a chat. You and I have a ridiculous amount in common, so I can't wait to dig in. Uh, I wanted to start with your personal journey and how you came to wear the two hats that you do, both as a researcher and as a science communicator. So these stories kind of parallel each other. So I started my um, graduate studies in genetics um, and then became very interested in neuroscience. So most of my work was actually in neuroscience. And then towards the end of graduate school, I got pregnant. And so I was very, um, I was thinking a lot about exposures and keeping my baby safe through pregnancy and through her early development. Um, and I also, in my research, was working on uh, toxicants that um, increase risk of Parkinson's disease. So there was kind of this parallel thing happening in my life where my research was related to what my personal worries were. Um, and then so I continued in that um, path of research. And then my science communication really started um, in 2015. There was the measles outbreak that started in Disneyland. And I just really started getting frustrated with all of the misinformation that I was seeing shared about that. Um, so that's how I, why I got into science communication and started my Facebook page, Mommy PhD. Um, and then it sort of evolved into everything that it's become with the Science Moms movie and the Sci Moms organization. Can you actually um, tell us a little bit about the Science Moms organization? Yeah, so we are Sci Moms. So the documentary is Science Moms, and we are separate from that. Um, so Science Moms was a documentary that Natalie Newell made about the five of us when she came across our writing. And through the process of going through the film and meeting each other in person for screenings of the film, we found that we really, not only do we like working together, the five of us just genuinely like each other. So we were like, we should work together more. And so it kind of came about organically. Um, and so Moms is an organization. We have a website um, where we try to share evidence-based information for questions that parents have for everything from vaccines and medical choices to food and diet to trampolines and skateboards. So really a full spectrum of questions that parents might have. I have to say you are definitely one of my go-to sources and it's amazing how often you have an answer or you're about to put out an answer of something that I've been thinking about. So <laughs> That's a lot, where most a lot of parents are. share the same questions. 
Yeah, and a lot of people now have started messaging us, and that's why I think when you come to us and we've already done it or we're working on it, it's because everyone has the same questions. So if yes. someone's emailed us, we do our best to get to it quickly. I love it. Uh, so can you elaborate a bit more on on sort of on your content expertise, I guess, and 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 a little bit more about you know why you're so familiar with these topics and what allows you to answer them? Um, so sometimes we are writing about things that are not directly our own expertise. And that's why we always, even if it's in our area, we always find the experts and cite them. Like I'm not an expert on trampoline safety, but I've written a post on trampoline safety because my son broke his leg on a trampoline. Um, and so we turn to the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons and the American Academy of Pediatrics. And so we go to the relevant authorities who have that expertise and all that we're doing is providing for parents where they can find that information. Um, yes. And so where my expertise is, I have, I am, my PhD is in genetics. I have neuroscience training in graduate school and in my postdoc training, I also have postdoc training in toxicology. Um, and now I do mostly neurotoxicology research. So mm -hmm. my expertise is broadly in biology more specifically in neuroscience and in toxicology. So understanding exposures and how that affects our health. Well, that's a great segue into what I wanted to do uh, to, to do next is to allow people to have a bit of insight into toxicology 101, essentially. So what are some of the basic principles of toxicology that you feel that the general public doesn't necessarily understand and would help them make more informed choices as they navigate the modern world? Yeah, so some of this is toxicology and some of this is risk. And mm -hmm. so I'll just give a little plug to our risk in perspective series that we have on our blog for some more details because I can't I cover I love that all. series, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> Good. We spent a lot of time on it. Um, and actually, I'm preparing a session for the Society of Toxicology meeting in a week and a half kind of based on that series. So it's it's yeah. sort of launched a whole, like... It's launched a lot of opportunities, which is great. Um, yeah. And so the first thing that I think people don't know, because this isn't something that we normally learn, is the difference between hazard, risk, and exposure. Mm -hmm. So a hazard is anything that could cause harm. So for example, there's a mug, like a vase, up on the shelf behind my computer that you can't see. Um, it's a hazard because it potentially could fall on me, mm -hmm. but it would only be a risk if something is there to push it to fall on me. That's not the best analogy, but I think it illustrates what I'm trying to say. So mm -hmm. hazard has the potential to cause harm. Risk is the probability of harm occurring. So mm -hmm. risk is just a measure of chance. How likely is it that that hurts you? It doesn't tell you anything about how harmful it is. So risk could be risk of a rash or a risk of dying, but the risk itself doesn't tell you anything about the severity of harm. And then the exposure is that you are coming into contact with that hazard. So I think the example that we used on the website is that sharks are a hazard, but if I never go in the ocean, I have no risk because mm -hmm. I have no exposure to that shark. Right. So and, and the risk of the shark would be it would be pretty bad because you could get bit or like what would be, is the risk sort of the worst case scenario thing that could happen if you were- No, exposed? the risk is a measure of probability. So if mm -hmm. I have no exposure to a shark, my, I have zero chance of being hurt by a shark. If I'm in the ocean 
maybe I have a, I have no idea if this is accurate, a 2% chance of being hurt by a shark. It says nothing about what that hurt is. It doesn't right. tell me if it's getting bashed by a shark or eaten by a shark. So where does um, the severity come in then? There's not really a measure for it in that framework. Mm. Um, so we have a quadrant and unfortunately I can't show you um, right now, but if someone goes to the risk series, simoms.com slash risk, um, we have a quadrant diagram that talks about the number of people affected and the severity of harm and positions hazards on that quadrant system. Mm -hmm. And so that's sort of where severity is. And where that comes in is when regulators think about what we should do or where we as individuals think about what we should do. You know, I'm not gonna be as concerned if something is very likely to give me a little bit of skin irritation we're not going to do the same thing as something that's very likely to cause cancer, mm -hmm. right? We're going to have different responses to right. those, even if the probability is the same. Right. So the other thing is that we often see exposure reported as adverse health effect. So adverse health effect means that something bad happens and exposure is different than that, right? Cause you can be exposed to a lot of things that don't affect your health, but understanding exposure is very important to understanding risk because of its relationship. A word that we hear a lot is, you know, chemical free. So maybe it's, there's, there's the chemical and then there's the um, sort of the division that I think that we see in the public a lot between natural mm -hmm. and synthetic. So that whole um, discussion. Yeah, there. that's a really important one. So I think people hear chemical and they think dangerous, they think risky, they think adverse health effects, but in reality, everything in our environment is made of chemicals. So th this statement that chemicals are dangerous is not actually accurate, but then there's other people who are like, oh, a chemical's a chemical, a chemical, and I've said that myself. And it's not necessarily that helpful because when people say chemicals are dangerous, they mean a certain type of chemical, right? Mm -hmm. So some of it is a specificity of language, but I think it's important because like people say chemical free, chemical free anything and that's soap a or whatever they might say chemical free soap it has chemicals some of it's okay and just this needless fear is not helpful and i think understanding the distinction between chemicals that are harmful and at what doses they're harmful is very important to help people feel more empowered and in control versus just sort of like i live in a chemical soup and it's all gonna hurt me mm -hmm. that's a very scary place to think that you live yeah, since I've started to, to live in this, um, spend more time thinking about, you know, safety and exposures and, you know, chemicals in my own environment, my favorite phrase is the dose makes the poison. And mm -hmm. I've just, I see that, you know, understanding that concept is so critical. Um, and yeah. yet it's so rarely, it's so rarely appreciated and brought into mm -hmm. the conversation. And that is a very traditional um, tenet of toxicology. And within that there's a lot of nuance so the dose makes the poison but not all dose response curves are shaped the same so regulators are trying to figure out especially as we figure out in recent years that some dose responses are worse at lower doses but eventually they're back down so how do we accommodate that into the regulatory framework um also we're finding out I shouldn't say we're finding out, we've known this for a long time. There are a lot of exposures where a lot of people expo are exposed, but only some people who are exposed have a, um, an effect of that exposure. So what 
is right. the dose interacting with. So we have genetic susceptibility, you have all your other exposures and that's called the exposome and we have the microbiome and we have the epigenome and we have all these other ohms. So it's really the dose in interaction with all of these other ohms. Right. It's hard to have a single dose curve. There's not one that applies to everyone necessarily because there are, like I'm thinking about the we were just chatting this morning about coronavirus and, um, mm -hmm. you know, susceptibility in immunocompromised peoples. Yeah. It's very complicated. Um, and then I wanted to get back to, you mentioned before this difference between natural and artificial. Yes. And I find that in online conversations, I find the whole conversation frustrating because I feel like nobody's having the nuanced discussion that this deserves. So, yes. Clearly, synthetic does not necessarily mean bad because I can make vitamin C in a lab. In fact, I have some in my lab. We use it all the time. Um, <laughs> I can also get vitamin C from an orange. That vitamin C is identical. It's identical to all the cells in my body, and it has the exact same effect. And the fact that it was made in a lab and that it's artificial tells me nothing about its chemical properties. Mm -hmm. However... There are some synthetic chemicals that are made that have no equivalent in nature, and thus there's no, nothing's evolved to get rid of it, to clear it. So those kind of chemicals, we should be a little bit more concerned about because they are synthetic, right? So those yeah, are I think, things. That, I think the trans fats are a perfect example of that one. And I was going to say, because I work on persistent organic pollutants, so organochlorine pesticides is what I work on, but it's also related to... PFAS, which has been in the news a lot lately, and because I live in Michigan, um, it's related to PCBs, which um, contaminated the Great Lakes for a long time. Um, PBBs, there was a huge accident in Michigan in the 1970s. Uh, PBBs are flame retardants where they were accidentally mixed into cattle feed. So those flame retardants um, got into the food supply. And so basically everybody who lived in the lower peninsula of Michigan in the 70s was exposed at very high levels to these chemicals. So all of those chemicals have a specific chemical structure in common that does not exist in nature. Mm -hmm. I think there might be some very, very rare cases where it exists. Right. So there's there's no nothing that breaks it down in the environment. So it's right. just sort of there. I guess that speaks to um, one of the things I was hoping we would cover is how does the FDA or, you know, how do these organizations assess the safety of a compound or safety or toxicology and determine a safe dose? And can, mm -hmm. can you believe it? You know, because there a lot of people just say, I don't even trust the government no matter what, because they've messed up before. Yeah. How does that come so, into the conversation? <laughs> There's a few things here, so I'll try to stay on track. So <laughs> first, I would say that we have to separate what the science says from what regulators do mm -hmm. because science is the science and it is what it is and it says what it says but what regulators choose to do on that science is somewhat of a separate issue mm -hmm. so regulators don't always follow the science um i think the lead in flint is a good example of that where scientists were saying hey there's lead and the regulators didn't want to listen. The scientists said, you can't send it through those pipes. There will be lead. And the regulator said, or the government said, we're going to do it anyways. Right? So the science is what it is. And regulators are supposed to make decisions based on the best science. Mm -hmm. um, 
So with that said, what the science can tell us are various metrics. So we can do experiments and we can do epidemiology and we can do toxicology studies and we can say when we do in vitro studies in animals and we give this much and we do a dose response curve, which means we give different doses of a toxicant to an animal and we look for specific effects, we find the lowest dose at which we see an effect. And that's called a Lowell, lowest observed adverse effect level. And there's also a NOEL, which is no observed adverse effect level. So you're finding the lowest doses before there's an effect. And then what regulators do is they take that and they divide it by what is known as uncertainty factors. And so this will often include a factor of 10 if it's based on an animal study, because we don't know the difference between humans and animals. Um, there are other uncertainty factors for various things like that. And so the safe limit is usually at least 10 times lower than the no effect level, but often much lower. And one of the questions to go back to the dose response curve, the shape of the bottom of the curve that I talked about, mm -hmm. um, there is some question over whether we should be more conservative and have the regulatory limit be even more. Right. So it's padded. It's padded, by, it's padded sort of by a hundredfold based on what you see in animals or 10 to a hundredfold, but some people think it should be padded even more. Yes. And some of that has to do with how to what bottom level of risk we should be regulating to. Right. So you can't really ever regulate to zero risk. That's not a realistic goal, but how low should we go? What, what endpoints should we consider? So traditionally, because it was all we really could do, they were looking for genotoxic things. So things that cause mutations that cause cancer. And that was the only thing that was looked at. And over time we've added more and more endpoints. So now, we look at things like in my field, like neurodevelopmental toxicology. So that's now incorporated into these things. So over time, we can consider more outcomes. We can consider more adverse um, health effects, and we can build in more safety margins. Um, but the regulatory trends in the U.S. have kind of gone the other way um, because of politics. So the other way in terms of, sorry, other way of not cushioning very much or um, it has they haven't changed how much we cushion but how much things are enforced and whether the government is willing to um, put in new regulations okay but just backing up to you know if you were to actually look at a report a government a sort of safety <laughs> assessment on a compound what would be the sort of components of that report? You, you mentioned the animal models, and you said maybe mm -hmm. there'll be some, um, you mentioned epidemiology, but you didn't really explain that mm -hmm. sort of the human data considerations yeah. that go into that, and then the sort of the in-the-dish kind of experiments we do. Yeah. So the in-the-dish and animal experiments get you these metrics, because you can't do those experiments in humans. It's not ethical um, to just expose people to a compound that you know is dangerous. We mm -hmm. can't do those studies. So what we use the epi for, epidemiology, sorry, for, is to look at what human exposure levels are. So then what regulators are trying to figure out is how does human exposure compare to these metrics that we figured out? And so mm -hmm. then they're trying to decide what should we do? People might be exposed, but it might be so far below the metric that you don't do anything. Mm -hmm. Maybe the human exposure is way above that metric, and then you need to take action. Right, right. So, 
But you might also, like, uh, I forget which chemical I was looking at. It was one of these, maybe it was arsenic. Sometimes you do have sort of accidental human data of people mm -hmm. that have been exposed. Yeah. With heavy metals, you'll definitely see a lot of that. Yes, yes. And so sometimes, unfortunately, you do have that data. You have miners or something, and you can look at what happened. Yeah, and so that's where using these kind of exposed cohorts is really informative. So mm -hmm. you have these tragedies that happen, like lead in Flint or PVBs in Michigan mm -hmm. um, or, or specific occupational groups like miners or something like that. Um, and those can tell you a lot about what happens at the Usually those are fairly high levels of exposure that aren't what's happening to the rest of us. Mm -hmm. So just, again, taking it back one level, you were saying the government figures out whether or not to take action. So is it is it the case that, um, again, some substances people can put as much as they want into the, your food or whatever and others there's a regulated amount so just backing it up a level is that is that a yes yeah, so we actually have a post on Simons about this also um how safe is safe is what it's called i think okay. um and in it we discuss what how they define these safe levels so the mm -hmm. first thing is that safe doesn't mean no risk it means it meets some criteria for mit that we have defined as minimally risky okay um so for the food supply for the FDA, that's something called grass, generally recognized as safe. And so that's just things that people have been consuming forever that yeah. are generally recognized as safe. Like I think that it exactly what it says. Um, right. So it's hard to argue that it's unsafe if we've been eating it forever and no one seems to have problems when they consume it. <laughs> yeah. And so there might be some low level, like we talked about individual susceptibility and the mm -hmm. interaction that with genetics, like peanuts are generally recognized as safe, except that some people have deadly peanut allergies. So right. even within those things, like there's some, some wiggle room, but generally recognized as safe is, and I don't actually, I, sh I should clarify, I don't know if peanuts are classified as generally recognized as safe. It was a, perhaps a poor example. One thing that just came up recently is I was looking, I have some tummy issues. Um, and I was looking at a product called IB Guard, which is for IBS, irritable bowel syndrome. Um, and it's basically like peppermint capsules um, okay. because peppermint helps with tummy distress. Um, and it's a, I was looking into it, studies on it because that's what I do. Um, and it's, it's a medical food. And so it's not FDA approved because medical foods don't have to be FDA approved like drugs if they only contain grass ingredients. And so because it's peppermint oil mm. and people have been drinking peppermint tea and peppermint has been a normal part of our diet for a very yeah. long time, that's considered safe. So those are the things that can go into our food supply without any specific testing. And there, there is a process to make sure, like it's not just like a company could be like, oh, we say this is grass, so it's grass. Mm -hmm. um, there's a process for demonstrating that that's the case. Yeah. I was going to say, I feel like there's a lack of appreciation for the other side of the natural synthetic divide being that natural things can be dangerous if you go bananas, like these, like an all kale diet, you know, there's, I mean, certain, you know, brassica can be goitrogens and if you mm -hmm. go bananas on anything, you can get in trouble, including these natural remedies, right? Yeah. And like we had, we just had a potato that we let sit too long and I cut into it and the whole thing was green. And that means that it now contains solanine which can make you really, really sick. So mm. that potato went in our compost mm -hmm. pile. Yeah. Um, but yeah, this comes up a lot with natural remedies. So one particular 
really scary story is these homeopathic teething tablets, mm. which so a homeopathic remedy should technically contain nothing. Like right. it should have the principle of homeopathy is that you dilute so many times that there's nothing left of it and that the water then has a memory of what you diluted it in. So I'll just put my plug that for homeopathy to work, everything we know about pharmacology, toxicology, physics, chemistry, and biology would have to be wrong. So that's my, my bit about homeopathy. Um, but so these companies were selling home homeopathic teething tablets and they didn't even do the homeopathy right. So they didn't dilute the substance properly and the substance oh. they were diluting was belladonna, which is a highly toxic natural substance. And so babies have died like from, because their parents are like, I'm going to give them this. It's natural. It's homeopathic. It sounds lovely. And then kids are dying. Like, and, and there's really, there, these things aren't regulated at all. That is really and so scary. there's no one regulating to make sure that there are what is in or not in the product is actually what's in or not in the product. And there's no testing beforehand. Wow. So it's terrifying. Yeah. Well, that's a good segue to, I wanted to sort of bring, to wrap things up by bringing it into how do you apply this in your life? How do you <laughs> use your scientific knowledge to navigate? So a couple of situations for you. Um, one is the grocery store. So when you go to the grocery store, are there specific things you are more or less inclined to buy because of your understanding of toxicology? Mm -hmm. So I don't worry about pesticide exposure, mm -hmm. even though I study pesticide toxicity. I also realize, sorry, aside with coronavirus, I keep touching my face and I shouldn't do that. So if we're going to talk about what I do in my own life, I shouldn't touch okay. my face. Um, Number one, don't touch your face. Don't shake hands. Wipe things down in the day of Corona. In the days of Corona. So I don't. I don't under this. The face thing is that just that it's a, you've got this sort of these um, entries points on your face. Is it because you have entry points your... on your face? And so yeah. if your hands have touched things, it's much more okay. likely to get into you. So okay. I am sorry. I've just been super focused on how much I touch my face. Interesting. Um, so when I go to the grocery store, um, I don't follow the dirty dozen. I don't worry about that kind of thing. I do try if I can to, I buy a lot of produce because buying more produce and eating more fruits and vegetables is always a good thing. Um, if I can get domestic produce, we try to do that because mm -hmm. we, the US has some of the strongest pesticide regulations. Yeah. Um, and. So some, sometimes if you don't know where things are coming from, they might not actually have the strong regulations. Yeah. I've actually um, looked at some, some regulatory reports on specific compounds where they test, you know, hundreds of, <laughs> of, of products and the Chinese ones do scare me sometimes. It, I, I see big know. differences in the spot testing. Yeah. And, and in the U S you can look up all these reports, like all those pesticide yeah. reports, it's available on the EPA and the USDA website. So it's there yeah. for you to see and look up and we can't do that for, all other countries where yeah. our food's coming from. Um, so I try to do domestic as much as possible, but that is also less about me because I'm going to wash my produce and more about the workers, like that occupational exposure mm -hmm. to those pesticides in a country where they don't have strong regulations. Right. Um, so we buy, most of our grocery list is produce. Um, we try to keep sugar, added sugar to a minimum. Mm -hmm. Um, and so we're not limiting fruit to limit sugar. That's thinking about added sugar. So like I try to get my kids not to add 
honey to all their yogurt because it's right. already sweet. They don't need more sugar. And um, so I mainly focus on sugar, eating a lot, reducing sugar, buying a lot of produce and added salt is another one that I look at. Mm -hmm. um, and other than that, yeah, Good. I don't worry. What about, what about um, I'm very, I would very similar to you, very similar shopping habits, mostly produce. Um, I pay more attention to local just to, again, sort of from feeling like just to supporting the community. And I know you've written about the environmental impact of local not being necessarily what you think it might be, but we'll sit, table that discussion for another one. Um, but yeah, to factoring in different um, considerations besides the pesticide one are actually more impactful. Um, and oh, we don't buy thing. bag lettuce if you want to talk about food risks oh. other than pesticides. So bag lettuce is think of all the food outbreaks foodborne outbreaks that have happened in the past couple of years like a lot of them come from pre-washed stuff and bag lettuce um so i find just from a cost thing the bag lettuce goes bad more quickly hmm. so that frustrates me because i only like to go to the store once a week um yeah. and yeah it's, why, why would it be more likely to be is, is, you're just, is it just because you don't wash it then and so it just washes i don't, I don't know I don't know if it's more contaminated or it's something through the processing facility, but it's, it's just, that's where, and it's, it's not just bag lettuce. We don't buy romaine lettuce anymore. Cause that one's just seems to be always in the news. So we buy green leaf lettuce. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I feel embarrassed that I didn't, that I didn't sort of twig on this earlier, but the contamination is it's all coming from the nearby livestock. It's coming from the fecal matter in the animal. Um, maybe in the bag lettuce it's going through a processing plant so maybe it's coming right like there are a lot of potential places but these are fecal from. contaminants essentially right these are e like e coli this i'm not so sure about so this yeah. part i'm not so sure about yeah we should uh, we should do sort of a a i guess this is a you know the toxicology discussion is a bit different than the food safety discussion yeah right and yeah that's a, so that's where food safety and toxicology overlap is sort of the pesticide residues and mm -hmm. i don't really worry about that mm -hmm. so much um i wash my produce yeah. partly because of pesticide residues but mostly to reduce bacterial contamination now what about when it comes to food preparation because you do research plastics that's something that i'm very curious about and i've heard you know for example you shouldn't microwave your plastics or, or maybe don't yeah. cook in certain type of cookware yeah so we i cook mostly in a cast iron or just stainless steel um and then I have one like really nice enamel coated. Yes, like Le Creuset yeah. kind of. Yeah, it's mm. really nice. <laughs> um, but it would be very expensive to have all my whole cookware set be like that. Yeah. Um, so mainly I use the cast iron and the stainless steel and we do a lot of um, roasted veggies and I just, I put down aluminum foil because then I don't have to wash the pan um, yeah. with all the oil. but. Yeah, we, I've gotten rid of most of my nonstick at this point. Mm -hmm. um, I don't heat plastic, so plastic doesn't go in the microwave. So even if I make a microwave meal, I dump it into a Pyrex container oh, and okay. microwave it in glass, um, which might be overkill, but it's, it's a very simple thing. And I don't know if it's actually doing anything, but it costs me nothing to do that. Yeah. Um, but what, what's, so, the, what's the, so what is the rationale behind that concern? 
Um, so people are concerned that when you heat plastic, any of the potential potentially toxic chemicals like BPA, phthalates, um, these plasticizers would leach out into your food. Mm-hmm. And so you, if you store it in plastic, it either doesn't leach or it leaches much more slowly. So you get a lot less in the food. And so if you heat it in not plastic, you don't get that leaching of the chemicals. I um, so I don't microwave any plastic. I don't put plastic. I occasionally put plastic in the dishwasher if it like needs a really good cleaning. Um, but generally I just use hot soap, hot water and soap in the sink. Hmm. So if it's all about the heat, then what about plastic water bottles? Any reason, I mean, besides environmental to be concerned? I mean, I think the environmental reason far outweighs the toxicology. I'm talking about like maybe the reusable plastic one that you carry around with you. A lot of people are shifting to carrying around glass. Yeah. Um, There's some difference in the types of plastic that I'm not sure of. Mm. I have a really nice metal water bottle that I got as some swag at the Society of Toxicology meeting. So I use that. Um, but I also have a glass one that's really heavy, so it's not convenient. And exactly. That's why, I, that's why I've been sort of yeah. struggling with that one. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think you could probably look into the different types of plastic because certain types of plastic have more or less of these and leach fewer chemicals, but I haven't looked into that specifically. Yeah. Um, we have a lot of the metal ones, like those Hydro Flask um, is a brand that we have. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I have this metal one, but they are heavy. And so when my when my second child was born, so in 2013, I was in a very anti-plastic, plastic is going to uh-huh. kill us all mindset. Uh-huh. Um, and so I had these glass baby bottles. Yes. And so I felt very like, I am doing the thing <laughs> and he's going to be perfect. And he's so much, he's so much sicker than my, like, he's not sick. He's a healthy kid, but like, he just gets more colds and he's just. Yeah, more of a mess than my daughter. And but I gave him glass baby bottles, but they were such a pain in the neck. Yeah, I Um, had some of those and I rarely use them, actually. Yeah, I mean, they were nice because I could put them in the dishwasher, which made things a little bit easier. But it took him he couldn't hold them. They were so heavy. Mm, Yes, yes. So it just. Yeah, yeah. If I had to do it again, I would use plastic. Really? Um, Yeah. One thing I heard someone say that they don't drink out of to-go cups against environmental question aside, you're drinking a hot beverage out of a little plastic lid. Is that in a, is that the kind of thing that would cross your mind to be concerned about? Or do you, or is that just seem it totally never occurred to me until this very moment <laughs> because okay. it's not like the lid, it only passes through that lid while you yeah. drink. If the concern is that the heat is making it leach out, I would be maybe concerned about it sitting in a hot plastic cup. Right. Because then it's, immersed but just right. passing through that lid right yeah you could just worry yourself to death so i, I wanted to wrap up with maybe just get some sort of one-liners from you if i'm going to fire you two questions and i want you to give me a, a sort of a one word answer or one phrase answer if you can so okay. if there's one thing that you would love to see um you know parents and, and others stress less about what would it be everything <laughs> i think <laughs> I think we put so much pressure on ourselves and I think we underestimate the effect of stress on our health, the effect of stress on our parenting and the effect of our stress on our kids. Mm-hmm. That's and a so, great one. Okay. Well, then I, I might know the answer to this one, but 
on the flip side, if there's one thing that you think people should be maybe more leery of than they are, is there anything that people are maybe under cautious about that you're more cautious than others and you, and you feel that was warranted? Um, flu and colds, like, mm. you know, in the midst of this coronavirus outbreak, everyone's washing their hands. And like I said, I'm super conscious of, am I touching my face? And we probably should be doing this all the time during cold and flu season. And it's only this scare that's making us do those things. Mm. Um, and that doesn't mean you need to run out and like buy out the supply of hand sanitizer. Just wash your hands. You don't need antibacterial soap. Soap and water is antibacterial. Okay. So well, that's a great, great note to close on. Wash your hands. I'm going to go do that after the show. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, thank you, um, Dr. Bernstein, Allison, for being on the show. It's been really fun chatting with you. It has been great. Thank you for having me. I'll, I'll be keeping an eye on your Mums content for sure. You guys are always answering my questions. Uh, I hope right on the money. <laughs> okay, okay, take care. Bye. Bye.